Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm a new customer and I want your best new smartphone deal. Well, I'm an existing customer and I'd like your best new smartphone deal. Oh, do you? Actually, it's for both new and existing customers. It's not complicated. Only AT&T gives everyone the same great deal. AT&T is appealing to consumers who feel cheated when they have to pay more than the promotional rate that new customers get, or feel frustrated that they have to get on the phone and negotiate for the lower rate. Well, one man in California decided to take his frustrations with serious XM's price disparities to court. Joseph Enriquez has been a serious subscriber since 2005 and obtained promotional rates throughout the years. But he had to threaten cancellation last year before a serious customer service agent finally agreed to give him the promotional rate. So Enriquez got the lower rate, but still sued Sirius XM, alleging it offers secret discounts to some customers. Does he have a case? Here to tell us is Jim Gibson, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. Jim, are all the causes of action in this lawsuit under California law? Yes, it's all California law. It's essentially California's version of what every state has and what the federal law has as well, which is essentially unfair trade practices. It includes things like false advertising, bait and switch, occasionally some sort of antitrust causes of action as well. So this is a common strategy used by cable companies, mobile phone companies. I just negotiated a new deal with Spectrum myself because my old rate expired. So what's likely to happen here? I think it's unlikely that Enriquez is going to win. As you said, this sort of differential pricing is probably more the rule than the exception, at least among businesses that you have a long-term relationship with, like your mobile phone provider or your cable provider or a streaming service. And the notion that existing customers don't get the same deal or have to work harder to get the same deal, I don't think has ever been held by a court to be an unfair business practice. The only sort of novel claim I think he's making, although ultimately I don't think it works either, is that this is actually anti-competitive. It's not just bad for individual consumers, but it's, it's essentially an antitrust matter because competitive don't really know what serious success prices are, and therefore it's harder to compete with them. But I'm not aware of any antitrust case, either at the state or federal level, that sort of says that businesses have to disclose their pricing regimes in order for competition to work the way it should. And surely SiriusXM's competitors know that SiriusXM is doing this, and they themselves are probably doing it as well. So companies don't have to disclose their prices anywhere. No, except in certain very narrow regulated industries, for the most part, you don't really have to tell anybody what 
price you're selling something for, and you can make them call you and ask or call you and individually negotiate. Now, obviously, it's often in a business's interest to advertise your prices, right, because that's how you attract customers. But that's more sort of the, the market mechanisms working rather than the legal mechanism demanding that businesses do so. And in fact, businesses have been price discriminating and, and giving differential pricing to customers in any number of interesting ways for as long as we've had businesses. Have you ever seen a lawsuit like this? Yeah, that's a good question. I really haven't. Price discrimination, and that's sort of the term economists use for this, is actually often considered to be a good thing in certain respects. And keep in mind when I say discrimination, I'm not using discrimination in the way that we usually do when we're talking about the law. We're not talking about sort of race discrimination or sex discrimination. We're talking about essentially figuring out how much a given customer might be willing to pay and charging that customer a different price from another customer. It's really considered in the world of economics and really in the world of legal regulation of the marketplace to be almost a feature rather than a bug of, of the you know, sort of free really? market system. Yes, the idea is that, look, as long as ultimately the customer is willing to pay the price, then the fact that another customer is willing only to pay a lower price shouldn't really affect the first customer's decision. The idea is we can always vote with our feet. No one has to subscribe to SiriusXM. And so if they're asking a price that's too high, you can take your business elsewhere or not subscribe to that sort of digital radio service at all. Don't get me wrong, there are ways in which the system doesn't work well within the marketplace, but the basic notion of charging different customers different prices is one that businesses spend a lot of time figuring out how to do correctly rather than avoiding for fear of legal liability. It seems unfair, and it seems like there'd be a consumer law against it, or there should be a consumer law against it. Well, let me give you a couple examples that I think most people would probably find inoffensive. Um, so, for example, movie theaters often charge matinee prices for early showings that are lower than, than sort of the, the evening showings. And the reason they tend to do that is because people who uh, can go to movies during the day um, tend to be people without jobs. Um, and therefore people perhaps without the means to pay the higher price. And so merely by charging different prices at different times of day, they're actually differentiating between those who uh, can't afford to pay the higher price and those, those who can. Uh, or coupons. People with the time to clip coupons get a lower price uh, because they use the coupon. Uh, folks who don't or who value their time more highly, who tend to be wealthier individuals, uh, maybe don't have that time. Uh, and so they end up paying the higher price. What we're talking about here is a little different, obviously, but I think it's a, a different version of the same idea um, that charging people different prices is, is certainly not forbidden as a matter of course by unfair competition law. Do you think that this might be dismissed even before it gets to trial? My guess is it probably will be, because I don't think this is the sort of case in which there's much in dispute factually. And of course, we haven't seen the answer in the case from SiriusXM. But my guess is this is much more sort of a, a question of legal policy and what sorts of practices should be allowed and, and shouldn't be allowed. And unless the federal court in California wants to really strike out there in a market regulatory direction that hasn't been the case before, it's unlikely to proceed probably beyond a motion to dismiss or, or a summary judgment stage. Do you think that the lawyers filed this with the idea of making it into a class action down the road? It certainly sounds like the kind of case that could be a class action. Um, the worry there is that, you know, perhaps because each individual customer's experience is so different um, in that, you know, it kind of depends on whether you call and what rate you got, um, that it might be difficult to say that they all have the sort of same common interest that a, that a class action usually responds to. But it certainly does have that flavor, given that he's, he's really trying to affect a change in their business practice rather than, you know, recover some substantial amount of money that, that he himself lost. 
So you're researching the ways in which companies use sophisticated marketing techniques on consumers. Tell us a little bit about what you're looking into. Well, this is really where the, the Sirius XM case and, and my research overlap, which is that I think the real danger that the Enriquez case sort of brings to mind is not so much that an individual customer might get a worse rate because they're an existing customer as opposed to a, a new customer. I mean, don't get me wrong, that upsets people. And in fact, there's an AT&T mobile uh, ad campaign out right now where they're promising and, and prominently featuring their promise to give the same rates to existing and new customers. So obviously, that's something that consumers look out for. But I think the real danger here is that as we get much and much more sophisticated uh, pricing mechanisms, particularly in the online world, where, say, you're on Amazon, they know exactly who you are, they know exactly what you've purchased and didn't purchase before, um, and they have very sophisticated algorithms uh, where they run all sorts of sort of machine learning experiences through them. It could be the case that you end up paying, everyone ends up paying their own very, very sort of tailored price given exactly who they are. And so that degree of price discrimination isn't about generalizations like, can you go to a movie at three in the afternoon versus seven in the evening? That could be a lot about your purchasing practices, where you live. It could be end up being about your race and your class and your gender and all sorts of other things that I think uh, make people much more worried about um, you know, differential pricing and all the things that go with it. I have to tell you, I identified with him because, you know, the constant haggling for prices is time-consuming and just a hassle. I'm completely with you, and it sort of turns around some of the notions that are behind older price discrimination models, which are that consumers with more time on their hands end up getting the lower price. In some sense, that's fine because you value your time, you know, less than you value the savings. But a lot of really low-income people have less time. You know, they're holding down two jobs. And so Consumer Reports has actually studied this. They call it the schmo tax because you're just some schmo. That lower-income folks end up paying higher prices in certain instances because they don't have the time to make the kind of phone calls that Enriquez is complaining about. So I don't want to portray myself as unsympathetic to that problem. But I do think it's pretty clear that as currently constituted, the legal system actually has not come to grips with that as something it should Thanks, Jim. That's Jim Gibson of the University of Richmond Law School. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. President Joe Biden is not backing down from his mandate that all employers with more than 100 workers require vaccines or weekly COVID tests. That's despite pushback from Republican governors like Florida's Ron DeSantis. It's the worst kind of politics because it's putting the lives of citizens of their states, especially children, at risk. And I refuse to give in to it. When you have a president like Biden issuing unconstitutional edicts against the American people, uh, we have a responsibility to stand up for the Constitution and to fight back. Two dozen Republican state attorneys general sent a letter to the Biden administration on Thursday saying they'll sue over any federal vaccine mandates. The first to the courthouse was Arizona. Joining me to help sort the legal challenges out is Kate Andreas, a professor at Columbia Law School. States routinely require school-aged children to receive a long list of vaccines. Does the federal government have the same power? So states have broad authority to protect the health and welfare of their residents, and they have the ability to impose vaccine mandates generally. And the Supreme Court has held that nothing in the Constitution deprives states of that right. So broad authority, and as long as they impose reasonable vaccine mandates, they can do that. The federal government's power is a little bit different. It can legislate in ways that are permissible under the Constitution, and the executive branch can regulate in ways that Congress has permitted. So the federal government has the ability under the Occupational Health and Safety Act to impose on employers the duty to create safe workplaces. So OSHA is an agency within the Department of Labor that has broad authority to require employers to adopt conditions or practices that are necessary or appropriate to provide a safe and healthy place of employment. So that gives the president and the Department of Labor the authority to promulgate vaccine mandates in order to ensure safe workplaces. So it's a broad authority, but it's a little bit different than what the states can do, which is kind of a more unlimited authority to impose vaccine mandates. So Biden is relying on the Occupational Safety and Health Act from 1970. 
but that doesn't explicitly cover compelled vaccination. So where are they getting the authority? Right. What the Occupational Safety and Health Act does is it imposes on employers a duty to have a safe workplace. And it gives the agency the ability to promulgate more specific rules in order to ensure that workplaces are safe. So it doesn't list every particular specific problem or danger that may come up. Rather, it's a broad authority that allows the government to then regulate reasonably to protect workers. And it's pretty clear, based on data that we have from the last 18 months, that COVID poses a really grave threat to workers in workplaces. So based on that, the agency should be found to have authority to protect workers to address that danger. Arizona's Attorney General Mark Burnovich admitted to Bloomberg that his lawsuit is almost certain to be dismissed by a judge because the actual rules for the vaccine mandate haven't been finalized yet. And other Republican attorneys general signaled that they'll wait for the rules before going to court. So is it important how OSHA frames the emergency rule? Yeah, so good point that OSHA would not be acting here through its normal process, which can take several years to promulgate a rule. The agency also has authority to quickly issue a rule, and that's known as an emergency temporary standard. And in order to issue an emergency temporary standard, the agency has to show that workers are exposed to a grave danger and that the rule is necessary to address the danger. It's also typically the case that the rule has to be feasible for the employer to enforce. So what precisely the emergency temporary standard says and requires is going to be important, right? The agency has to show that there's a grave danger and that the rule is necessary to address that danger. So would the most likely challenge be to whether COVID presents a grave danger and whether the rule is necessary? I mean, I think there's quite significant evidence that COVID presents a grave danger. So my guess is that most of the arguments will focus on whether the rule is necessary to address that danger. Typically, courts give expert agencies like OSHA a lot of deference with respect to their determination as to whether a rule is necessary to address the danger because they're experts on workplace safety. But we'd have to see what precisely OSHA offers in terms of its reasoning, and that would then be challenged in court. Biden pledged to go all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary. Do you have any general idea of how this might fare at the high court, which recently scrapped the CDC's eviction moratorium? It's always hard to predict, particularly given the changes in the federal court and in the Supreme Court's composition. But I really do think that OSHA is on very strong legal ground here. And if it follows proper procedures and offers sufficient bases for its actions and also designs the temporary standard in a way that makes it feasible for employers to comply, that at least under existing precedent, it should survive review. Unions have warned that mandatory vaccination policies in the workplace have to be negotiated. Where do they stand here? Yeah, so typically um, when an employer wishes to change a term and condition of employment when its workforce is is, um, unionized, the employer has to negotiate how that is done and what the terms are. And that's also just good employment practice because workers have a right to sort of have a voice in and, and how rules are implemented. So if, if we're talking about a situation without um, a governmental mandate, if an employer wants to impose a mandate and the, employ- and the workforce is unionized, then the employer would be required to negotiate about how that is done. Um, 
with respect to when there's a federal rule, however, that employers have to comply with, then employers have to comply with that. And that overrides anything that, you know, is to the contrary in a contract. And I do think a lot of unions actually have recently recognized um, that, that, that these um, vaccine protections are actually part of protecting all workers. And so um, although some unions have expressed concerns, many others have actually um, argued for more protection so that all of their workers um, can be safe at work. Going back to lawsuits for a moment, do Republican states have standing to challenge the mandate? That's a good question, and I think it's unclear whether they would have standing or not, um, whether they would able to be sh- able to show that the, at, that the states were actually harmed in some way um, is, a, is an open question. Um, but I would expect that there would be um, others who would have standing, including workers and businesses, and that the states could then um, you know, opine in, in the cases, even if they themselves don't have standing. I would expect to see a lot of businesses or business groups like the Chamber of Commerce challenging this. Possibly, although it's notable that a lot of employers have voluntarily imposed, um, you know, either a mandate, albeit ones with for vaccines with some exceptions, um, because I think a lot of employers recognize that in order to get the economy working again, there's um, good reason to have more widespread vaccination as long as there are sufficient exceptions to protect uh, those workers who either can't, um, you know, for for some reason. Um, So, yes, I think it's quite likely there might be suits, but I also think a lot of the major employers are moving in this direction on their own. So what happens if a state, let's say Florida, has a law saying or executive order against vaccine mandates? And then this vaccine mandate from OSHA comes along. Does the federal regulation take precedence? Generally, federal law preempts state law. So if there's a conflict between federal law and state law, the Constitution, as long as the federal law is itself legitimate um, or the federal regulation is itself legitimate, it would preempt or kind of kick out the state law that is to the contrary. That's not to say that it won't be contested because there'll still be the question whether OSHA has the authority to promulgate the rule and whether the rule or the standard is um, acceptable in the way that they've done it. But if it is held to be legal, then it would um, preempt or kind of um, override any state rule to the contrary. And that's true across the board, whether we're talking about health and safety issues or um, uh, any other um, area in which the federal government has Uh, the ability to legislate or regulate. When Biden was announcing that the CDC was going to do a second moratorium on evictions, he said, well, constitutional scholars say there may be a question about this, it may not work, but we'll buy some time. So in this case, even if the rule is in effect for several months, the legal challenges will take long enough that millions of Americans could be vaccinated while the rule's in effect. That depends because sometimes courts stay, meaning kind of postpone the, a rule while they're considering the issue. So I think that question of how um, how immediately a rule will go into effect really depends on what happens in litigation. But as I said previously, because the government is on such strong ground here in the sense that there really is a grave, uh, or at least it appears, right, that there's quite a bit of evidence that there's grave threat to workers' health. 
um, I would expect that um, it's quite possible a court would allow the temporary standard to go into effect pending litigation, but, but it could go either way. Thanks, Kate. That's Professor Kate Andreas of Columbia Law School. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.